This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. This weekend's deadly shooting in Jacksonville, Florida, is just the latest incident of violent white supremacists taking black lives in this country. Now, a new class of activists say white supremacists of all colors need to be confronted everywhere, from the courts to the streets. Everything ranging from who you vote for to what you purchase, who you patronize, is all going to make a difference. Confronting American Fascists, coming up on Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Angela Michelle Carr, A.J. Laguerre, and Gerald Gallion were shot to death this weekend in Jacksonville the victims of a racist gunman who later killed himself. He had approached other locations with the explicit goal of murdering black people before opening fire in a Dollar General. The Jacksonville shooting is part of a rising tide of violent racism, targeting the black community and others. At the same time, white supremacists have found increasing acceptance within mainstream politics, and leaders who seek their support have looked the other way while these white nationalist groups threaten and harass black people, brown people, queer people, and anyone who they deem to not be a part of their America. But a new activist class is rising to combat white supremacy, and Daryl Lamont Jenkins is on the front line of this fight. He's an activist and journalist who has devoted his career to tracking and confronting fascists and violent extremists and to helping people who want a way out of those movements. He's also the executive director of One People's Project, an anti-fascist action group. And he joins us now. Daryl Lamont Jenkins, welcome to A Word. Happy to be here, sir. Happy to be here. Traditionally, like media outlets, 24-hour cable networks, newspapers, local radio, they've treated murders like those that happened this past weekend in Jacksonville as like lone wolves. What is wrong with the portrayal of these mass shooters as lone wolves? And what are the consequences of putting that narrative out there, that they're these just single solitary guys who reach their limit? I think one of the reasons why we keep having that particular problem is because there is a bit of intimidation coming from the right that the media keeps feeling each and every time these issues come up. And the the right has basically built a cottage industry of denying any form of racism that comes up, even when the person themselves is declaring that they are racist or what have you. They have to come around and try to downplay it. Like before there's even an ounce of sympathy towards the victims of this latest shooting, the whatabouts come out. They start talking about black crime. They start talking about why aren't we talking about mental health, of course. And they just ratchet it up. The media feels that. So they try to temper their remarks so that they don't get some blowback from some right wing pundit or what have you. And that's damaging. That is really damaging because it means that we are not resolving this issue. It means that we are going to see this again. I mean, and in Jacksonville, we really need to deal with the situation. It's been a problem for a very long time there. What do you think is perhaps the biggest misconception that the mainstream press or most Americans? And when I mean most Americans, I mean everybody. I mean, not just white folks. I mean, blacks, Latinos, Asians. What do you think is maybe the biggest misconception that Americans have about the current white nationalist movement in America? 
if we were to talk about any kind of misconceptions, it would be the idea that they are, in fact, lone wolves, that these are isolated incidents. That's about the only thing I can see as being a misconception, because truth be told, white supremacists, the far right are the most dangerous circles out there. And that's coming from FBI stats. That's coming from warning from our government, letting us know that this is these are who the threats are who the biggest threat is, I should say. And because of the aforementioned pushback coming from the right, a lot of people don't get this kind of information. And so they're confused as to whether or not it is as big a deal as we would probably make it. In fact, they will probably buy into a lot of what the right is saying, because when you are talking about white people in particular, when you are talking about the circles that these far-right individuals will come from. Now you're talking about brothers and fathers and sisters, and they don't want to hurt them, you know, and neighbors and such, and they see them as good guys otherwise. There's a level of protection coming from that angle as well. However, we don't come from that world, (laughs) And we have to protect our brothers and sisters and fathers, and we got to push back. So that's usually where the conflict is. It's kind of like a forced ignorance on the part of society sometimes, because we don't want to stir the pot, so to speak, when the pot's already been stirred. It's bubbling over. So what do we do? How do we reconcile that? We know we have a problem, but we don't want to solve it. And we know how. What is behind the rise in white nationalist terrorism and activism amongst non-white people? I mean, the head of the Proud Boys is Enrique Tarrio. He is a brown Afro-Latino man. We've seen Latinos become very, very attracted to sort of the MAGA elements of Trumpism. Where's that coming from? Why is white nationalism becoming so popular with non-white people in this country? I actually had written an article with uh, Chloe Cooper for Political Research Associates about this. And a lot of it comes from the fact that we have advanced ourselves over the past, I guess, 50 years. We are putting ourselves in positions where... We are controlling certain areas of industry. We do have more of a voice. We do have more of a prominence. We got our first black president a couple of years ago. When you see all of this, that means that we have been putting ourselves in a position where our children are not growing up with the same experiences that we have. We are now raising children who pretty much grown up middle class and they do not have the same kind of relationship to the struggle that we have been through. Doesn't mean the struggle isn't there. The struggle is still real, but they don't feel it. In fact, being middle class, they also become more and more conservative. Okay, fine. But when that conservatism goes over the top as fascism generally does, then you start wondering, well, Why wouldn't this be a part of something? I mean, they still are about the same ideals that I have, with the exception of the racism. They don't see themselves as fighting for white supremacy. But I've spoken to black people and Hispanic people who adopt white supremacy, and they look at it as a way to advance those kinds of principles within our communities. In other words, 
it's cool to be a, a national socialist in the black community. And remember one of the things that when you hear white supremacists talk, they talk about being separate. They talk about trying to break up the country, trying to put us in our own separate lands, regions of wherever we are. And these persons of color pretty much adopt that. Now, we're talking about the Nazis. We're talking about those that are the straight up fascists and they're all about everything that white supremacy is about. When you're talking about the Proud Boys, however, they really just do not believe that what they are about is white supremacy. They actually try to pretend that their fascism can work for all of us together. And that's garbage, especially when you consider the white fascists aren't looking at it that way. They're looking at you as a black man, as a useful idiot. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on confronting white supremacy. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about fighting white supremacists with activist Daryl Lamont Jenkins. Daryl, you've been on the ground in Charlottesville during the deadly white supremacist attack back in 2017. You've been to countless other demonstrations over the years. What is your goal in going to these hotspots where you know you're going to encounter white supremacists, where you know you're going to encounter Proud Boys? Why do you go there? What's the goal? I think it's one of the best opportunities to um, basically collect information. I'm a journalist by vocation, and my thing has always been, and my activism really is trying to make sure I get the who, what, when, where, and why. And I don't want to engage in propaganda. I don't want to draw a conclusion before I have all the um, answers. So you have to go to these things, and you have to um, be a part of them in order to basically get the facts out for everybody that's going to be reading IdaVox, which is our website, and getting the news from us. I don't think a lot of people even knew, without our videos being out there, that Enrique Tarrio was at Charlottesville. And, and there's a whole bunch of other people that I saw at Charlottesville that went on to become Brow Boys after Charlottesville. And we wouldn't know a lot of this were it not for people like myself and others who are documenting all of this. The biggest thing to remember is that a lot of these groups, a lot of these individuals are trying to remain in the shadows, trying to remain underground. We can't let them do that. So the only way you can prevent that is if you are out there going wherever they go. And by the way, it isn't always a case of you wait until the next rally and you go and deal with them and take pictures and talk to them or whatever. They get arrested. They go into courts on a regular basis. It's always a matter of just going into the courtroom because that's probably even better than just going to a rally because there, everything about them is laid bare to the public. Whatever they get themselves in trouble with, you sit there and you get to learn exactly who they are, what they're about, and what led them there in the first place. And that's important, too. What kind of danger have you encountered? If you're on the ground, oftentimes these people are armed? Have you been attacked? Have you been chased back to your car? Have you been shot at? Like, What kinds of physical dangers have you encountered reporting on the white nationalist movement in the United States over the last 20 years? I think, honestly, the most dangerous, well, there's a few dangerous things, but Charlottesville is obvious. And as they were armed, so was I. So there's that. I mean, but when they get to know you, 
and they want to try to test you, that's when it really gets to be fun. I mean, we're talking about Jacksonville. December 16, 2006, there was a benefit show that was supposed to be held at one of the clubs down there to benefit my organization, One People's Project. I didn't put it together. It was um, some locals down there that wanted to do that for us. The white supremacists were not too fond of that. And they made a lot of noise about it in the lead up to it. I flew down and uh, I got a call that the windows were shot out of the club and they had to cancel. This is Jacksonville. And that's the kind of thing that you have to be prepared for. If you're putting them out there, if you're causing them some grief, if you're getting them fired from the jobs or whatever, if you're getting them locked up, whatever, they're going to look at you as a boogeyman and they're going to look at you as a threat and they're going to want to eliminate that threat. So it's not even a case of what happens when I'm on the ground amongst them, because um, that can go either way. Proud Boys just want to talk. Other times, folks want to swing. But I think the biggest threat is when I'm not in that crowd and they want to try to step to me as I'm going through my day to day. Amongst conservatives, in my view, uninformed mainstream media voices, Antifa has become this sort of lazy shorthand as left-wing extremists, right? They put Antifa in the same category as the Proud Boys, as the Ku Klux Klan, as neo-Nazi groups. But you embrace the term. What does Antifa actually mean? And what have you done to sort of battle back against the way that term has been warped in, in public discourse? How it was warped was by that propaganda mill that comes from the right that we was initially talking about. And, and everybody should bear that in mind. Of course, they are not going to like anybody that calls themselves anti-fascist. Of course, they're going to be the ones that get upset when you hear Black Lives Matter. But to be sure, let's make it clear. Antifa is short for anti-fascist. If you are anti-fascist, you are Antifa. If you are against fascism, you are Antifa. They are talking about you. And that's the simple um, definition of it. So for it to be a, a buzzword, a bad word, a word that just stirs hearts and the fears of men or whatever, it's not warranted. So I embrace it because I've been embracing it for the past 30 years. So why would I start getting afraid of anybody who calls me that when I don't think it's a bad thing anyway? Thank you for this. One of the interesting threads to sort of your story and your journalism and your activism is that you've helped people leave the white supremacist movement. That is amazing to me. I've seen people come out of gangs and that may require, you know, moving or when you leave prison or something else like that. But leaving white supremacist movement seems way more complicated. So first off, what's that process like? And then second, Again, is the process of leaving a white nationalist movement, is it different if you're Asian? Is it different if you're Latino? Or is the process all the same of sort of getting out of those movements? I think it's easier than you think. We have a lot of organizations that are geared towards helping people get out of that gang lifestyle. And it's the same dynamic. I remember um, someone asking me if I was to create a program that will help people get out of white power scenes and all that, how would I do it? And the first thing that I said is that I would include everybody. Them gangbangers will be in that room, along with those white supremacists, the people who are like in radical religious cults or whatever, because it's all the same beast. And I think I get that from my father, who was a drug counselor, and his way of approaching 
dealing with drug addictions was to deal with all the addictions a person might have. I mean, you're dealing with sex addictions. You're dealing with alcoholism. Anything that you are latched onto that is pulling you down, he would deal with. And I think that's the approach that I would take. In regards to white supremacy, there is a dynamic that you have to still deal with, and that's the fact that they still want to kill you. (laughs) And and that comes first and foremost. (laughs) That comes first and foremost. And just like my father, when it comes to dealing with the people who are getting high, it's always going to be for me an attitude of you have to come to me. You have to basically hit rock bottom. You have to get to the point where you want to change, because if you don't want to change, I can't help you. I'm not going to lead you by the hand talking about there's a better way. If you still want to be the antagonist towards me and mine, I'm moving on to the next one and I'm fighting you. We're going to take a short break. We come right back. More about fighting violent white supremacists with activist Daryl Lamont Jenkins. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to a word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with anti-fascist activist Daryl Lamont Jenkins. Daryl, former President Trump is on trial in several different places, and he's made not so subtle calls to his supporters to show up where he's in trouble. And we know who he's talking to. Has there been a rise in recruitment to these kinds of groups since the Trump presidency? Or is it simply that these groups feel more comfortable being out in the open since he's been in office? The latter. The latter. Definitely the latter. This has never been about Trump. It's been about these groups who have been trying to do this for over 60 years since the civil rights movement. That was when they started coming up with these so-called think tanks like the Leadership Institute and Heritage Front, um, why the neo-Nazi groups like George Lincoln Rockwell was prominent in the 60s. That's when he got started. And it's basically always has been a case of them trying to build the conservative movement. Now the conservative movement is, I don't know, can you say it's cresting today? (laughs) I think really... When Reagan became president, that gave them the boost that they really needed. But that foundation of Reagan's presidency has crumbled because we still have managed to build up and grow and evolve and become a part of society in places where we weren't supposed to be. Case in point, the White House with Barack Obama. Trump's presidency was their opportunity for a Hail Mary. They're still in the Hail Mary stages. I mean, they constantly say, if we don't do it now, we would never be able to do it again. And that's true. It's not just rhetoric, because we were just talking about black people who are embracing white supremacy. The fact that white supremacists are embracing them back gives you an idea of how far they've fallen. I mean, and honestly, we should take we should take that to heart. We should keep continuing to do as we do, you know, but I think um, it's not so much a case of them growing, but a case of them getting more and more desperate to the point where they don't even try to appeal to the public. This is one of the reasons why I say they're not growing. They're not even trying to appeal to a larger audience. They're trying to rally the audience that they have. I forgot who said this. But this was before Trump even became president. Somebody said, you know, conservatives are just these days comfortable governing their own little enclaves across the country. That's still the case. 
The only thing that they're doing now is trying to encourage other conservatives to join them in those enclaves. I was just listening to Glenn Beck this morning. Him and his crew were talking about how everybody should move out of the big cities and just start coming down to their area of Texas or places where conservatives run because the rest of the country is lost. Of course, this is also coming in at the same time they're calling for civil war, but it's something that tells you that it's more or less that they've pretty much given up on America and they are now trying to find a way to maintain their principles in the face of us, basically. I, too, have heard this rhetoric. All these sort of white conservatives who aren't necessarily white nationals, but white conservatives are like, let's move to Florida, right? Let's turn Florida into this sort of safe haven for people. And yet, while in the real world, you see white nationalists trying to create their own enclaves, you know, going to Utah, going to Texas, going to Florida, online, they seem obsessed with being in the larger cultural milieu. I mean, Elon Musk taking over Twitter was basically, hey, it's not fair. White supremacists don't like just arguing with each other on Rumble. They want to be on Twitter where they can attack gay people and they can attack black people. It's like they weren't happy amongst themselves online. They exist to sort of attack and antagonize. So I'm curious, where do you see the white nationalist movement online moving today? Is it splintered more now because... Twitter has led to all these offshoots. Is it just as powerful as it was before? Is it weakened because they don't have the mainstream support of somebody like Tucker Carlson on Fox? Where is white nationalism online right now? Well, see, that's the fun part. Fascists don't stay within their borders. <laughs> that's always been the biggest problem. I mean, Jefferson Davis famously said, all we ask is to be left alone. Jefferson Davis owned slaves. He wasn't leaving his slaves alone. So, you got to look at it like that. And remember, even th- as I noted, they're trying to bring people into their own little enclaves while at the same time threatening civil war against the rest of the country. Fascists don't stay within their borders. They're really just trying to build their strength so that they can come at us in a way where they can take this back over again. As a matter of fact, I remember seeing online about how we all should just break up the country And then somebody comes in and says, yeah, and then when they all fall apart, we're just going to take it back over again. It's like, okay, so only thing we know to do is just kill your way of thinking. When it comes to ending the, the fascist creep, and we can take this back to Jacksonville, we can take this back to a lot of these mass shooters. While these guys are not lone wolves, they're still getting their information from online chat groups. They're still going to Facebook groups and Rumble groups and Twitter group chats and everything else like that. They are getting encouraged. In fact, they don't feel like lone wolves. They feel like they're finally a part of a community when they go online. How do we attack that? I mean, we we have a country that's nominally allows free speech. The internet is all over the place. How do you stop young men in particular from being recruited into these groups? Or how do you attack that ideology when they can just find a chat group anywhere that tells them the reason that you're unpopular and that no one wants to have sex with you is because there's a black man on television with a basketball. I think the only thing that you can do really is that you just got to be really vigilant against those groups, against those chats. I mean, yes, we do have freedom of speech. They also say the best way to fight hate speech is with more speech. Use that speech to expose these groups. And I do wonder at times when you see these organizations and you you mentioned something key here, and I want to make sure we also 
address this. You talk about money. It always seems like there is an inexhaustible amount of money out there to support right-wing terrorism, even if it's in the form of a GoFundMe. Money showed up for George Zimmerman you know, over a decade ago. Money shows up for Kyle Rittenhouse. Every single time one of these white nationalists engages in an act of violence, there always seems to be money popping up to support them and protect them. That's not illegal. How do we address that? How do we? Because if I'm the next mass shooter, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to attack this HBCU, right? Which is what almost happened in Florida, but he was turned away. I'm going to attack an HBCU. I'm going to go to a church like Dylan Roof did. I'm going to go to a grocery store where I know there's a lot of black people. And assuming I don't die in a shootout with the cops or the black people themselves don't end up killing me and defending themselves, I know that Sean Hannity and Nick Fuentes and other prominent right-wing people are going to raise $300,000 for me, and then I'm going to have an internship with Marjorie Taylor Greene. How do we attack that money? You know, it all goes back to that line from The Godfather when Michael Corleone was in Cuba and he saw the revolution happen. And he noticed that the the soldiers that were fighting the revolutionaries were paid. Some of them paid mercenaries. And what that meant to him was that the revolutionaries were going to win because the revolutionaries were more dedicated. They had something to lose and they weren't about to lose it. You can get a paycheck anywhere. (laughs) If you're losing your money, you can go somewhere else and make more money. If you're losing your life, that's it. So, I think that's what drives us. How do we fight it is basically staying on it. I mean, no matter how much it hurts, it's going to hurt. And let's be fair. There are some people amongst us who do have the money, do have the resources, who do have the savvy to take on some of these um, Goliaths, you know. And yes, we are dealing with people who are billionaires, people who come from old money. We are dealing with the old establishment that does not like being the old establishment. (laughs) And they have lots of old money behind them. And that's what it is we're fighting. I mean, it goes back to something that Fred Hampton once said. Racism is a byproduct of capitalism. These were those capitalists he was talking about. So we know that that's the fight we have. But we also know that that's the fight we have to wage. We just have to figure out a way to pool our resources to deal with that kind of element. And we have done it before. We can do it again. It's just going to require some sort of dedication on our parts. If I'm listening to this right now and I've listened to you and I'm like, okay, wow, rise of white nationalism, the shooting in Florida, these shootings we're having all over the country. What can I do as an ordinary citizen to fight against the rising tide of fascism and white supremacy in my daily life. What do you tell the person who is, and I don't mean this in an insulting way, the person who's a casual? It's like, look, I work every day. I I can't be a full-time activist. I got a nine-year-old and a 13-year-old, but this concerns me. What can I do? What can you tell that person that they can do? I think they're the most important people on this planet. And I think they're the most powerful people on this planet. And I think one of the reasons why I would say that is because they are a part of a community that has built something. And no one is going to come from outside of that community to destroy it because then you got the community on their behinds. I think the truth of the matter is, it's funny because when we look at Charlottesville and we looked at January 6th, a lot of people took the bull by the horns and just started 
going after these groups. And that's why the Proud Boys are sitting in jail right now for the next 30 years. That's why, or will be, we'll see. That's why the Oath Keepers are sitting in jail for the whenever. That's why Donald Trump is the first president to be indicted, let alone four times, because we saw the threat and we are handling it. So I don't even know if I have to say too much as in what can you do? Get on board against that. Get on board with that fight, because apparently we know what we have to do. We know what we're doing. This is our community. This is our society. And um, it's not theirs. I would just say everything ranging from who you vote for to what you purchase, who you patronize, is all going to make a difference. That's one of the reasons why when Neil Young left Spotify because they brought Joe Rogan on, it was important. You don't have to be a part of these kinds of things. No one's telling you you have to be a part of it. You know, that's what I would just simply say. I say simply, we got this. Keep doing the right thing. Most important thing you can do is probably be educated as to who's the problem people and who we need to deal with. And that's one of the reasons why One People's Project exists. The one thing that I will say, however, stop waiting for people to die. (laughs) If we have the resources and we have the ability to handle this, and we've shown that we do. We don't have to wait for someone to die in Charlottesville. We don't have to wait till January 6th. We don't have to wait till somebody does the next mass shooting. We have the resources now. Use them. Daryl Lamont Jenkins is the executive director of the One People's Project, an anti-fascist action group. Thanks so much for joining us today on Award. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel. Ben Richmond is Slate's senior director of podcast operations. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word. <laughs>